You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Amen. Well, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning, and the title is The Rock of Destiny. If you want to pull out your study guides, you can follow along this morning. But the Rock of Destiny is what we're going to be looking at in this chapter. I want to start, though, by talking about this place called El Capitan, speaking of rocks and rocks of destiny. El Capitan is a vertical rock formation found in Yosemite National Park near Fresno, California. I've been to this park several times in my lifetime, climbed this, actually, not the, not the face of it. Uh, I would never even attempt that personally, but there's a back path that you can take. It's a 17-mile hike, and I've done that a couple of times Amazing, absolutely amazing. If you get a chance to do it, you got to do it. But at its tallest face, El Capitan is about 3,000 feet from the base of the valley floor to the summit. And this granite stone has become a rock climbing destination favorite. It's also been the rock of death for at least 30 people who have died attempting to climb its face. Now, on June the 3rd of 2017, a man named Alex Honnold completed the first free solo climb of El Capitan. He ascended in three hours and 56 minutes. He started his climb at 5.32 a.m. in the morning and finished at 9.28. And that climb was filmed in the 2018 documentary called Free Solo. You think you can find it on Netflix But for those of you that do not know this, free solo climbing means that he climbed without any protective equipment at all. Free climbers usually have a rock to where, or a rope to where if they fall, that rope rope will catch them. This guy had nothing, nothing, nothing was supporting him as he climbed up the face of El Capitan. So for Alex Honnold on June the 3rd, 2017, El Capitan became his rock of destiny. When he started out in the morning, he did not know if he would still be alive at the end of the day. He had no idea where his life was going at the end of that day. That reminds me of David in our story today. You see, David is in a similar place where he's going to be hiding out at this rock, and he's going to be waiting on God, basically, to decide his destiny for him. And David was in a place where he could not be sure of what his future held. Perhaps you're in a place like that this morning. Whereas you're looking at your life and the circumstances you're in, you're also at a place where you're not sure what the future holds. In fact, none of us really can know. There's too many variables. There's too many things as human beings we'll never know. But the Bible does tell us that when we make God's love the firm foundation for our entire lives, we can be sure of our future. We can smile at the future. We can have a peace in our hearts. And that's the main idea of chapter 20. That's what the writer of the book of 1 Samuel is seeking to put into our hearts today through this chapter. That God, in his faithful love, is who guarantees our future. And he holds and provides a firm foundation for us in the midst of of troubling times. We started off in chapter 20, verse 1 through 11, where we see a desperate plea for help as Jonathan and David prepare to go separate ways. It says, oh, and before I start reading, let me just 
as a word of information, you know, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. I felt like it does just a really good job of making this story fit together and flow very coherently. So that's why I'm reading from the New Living. Normally I teach from the New King James, if you didn't know that. But it says, David now fled from Naioth in Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done? He explained. What's my crime? How have I offended your father that he's so determined to kill me? Let me pause right here for a moment and give you the context quickly. You remember in the last chapter, chapter 19, we left David at Naioth with Samuel, and Saul was out to kill him. He had dispatched three groups of people to come and to kill David. And if you remember with me, there at the end of chapter 19, all three of these groups, they show up in Naioth, there's Samuel the prophet, and immediately the Spirit of God overwhelms them. They fall down, and they begin to prophesy as well. And so finally, Saul's like, man, I'm tired of sending men. I'm going to take care of this myself. And he gets, and he goes there to Naioth as well. And as he comes on the scene there into Samuel's presence, the Spirit of God overwhelms him too. And he falls on his face, and he strips off his clothes. And it was a prophetic sign that God had stripped the kingdom away from Saul and given it to David. And he's laying in the dust. He's prophesying. Well, David, in the meantime, is like, I got to get out of here. That guy right there wants to kill me. And so he takes off, and here we pick it up in in verse 2, where he's speaking now with Jonathan. He says, Jonathan replies, he says, that's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Then David took an oath from before Jonathan or before Jonathan and said, your your father knows perfectly well about our, our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan, why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. So David replied, tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. I've always eaten with the king on this occasion. But tomorrow I'll hide in the field and stay there until the evening of the third day. If your father asks where I am, Tell him I asked permission to go home to Bethlehem for an annual family sacrifice. If he says, fine, you will know all is well. But if he's angry and loses his temper, you will know he's determined to kill me. Show me this loyalty as my sworn friend. For we made a solemn pact before the Lord. Or kill me yourself if I, sinned, if I have sinned before your father. But please don't betray me to him. Never, Jonathan exclaimed. You know that if I had the slightest notion my father was planning to kill you, I would tell you at once. Then David asked, how will I know whether or not your father is angry? Come out to the field with me, Jonathan replied, and they went out there together. Let's pause right here for a minute in our story. This is the first scene out of four different scenes we're going to see in the story today. But notice in this scene, scene one, David is desperate. He is pleading for help because he's not trusting the Lord for his future, but he's looking to himself and he's going, how can I arrange circumstances? How can I plan? How can I scheme here to, to get to a solid place? And so he's grasping for straws. He's pleading for help. He's going to Jonathan full of anxiety, full of fear in his heart. Put yourself in, in David's shoes this morning. In fact, Maybe you don't have to because you already know the same feeling. 
I know that I personally can identify with David. When I get into troubling circumstances, when there are trials in my life, I find myself grasping for straws. And depending on how serious the trial is and what's going on, sometimes I'll, I'll be very serious about seeking out help on my own and trying to fix the situation myself. That's what David is doing here. The writer wants us to see the anxiety, the fear that has gripped David's heart. He's running, he's running to his friend, he's kind of shaking him by the shoulders, hey, Saul, your daddy's out to kill me, man. And Jonathan's going, no, what are you talking about? I don't know about you, but I have grasped for straws plenty of times. I've, I've been scared for my life a few times. I've racked my brain, staying up late at night, trying to come up with schemes and plans to fix things, to work things out. That's the place that David is in right now. And he's asking Jonathan for help. He's asking him for loyalty. Let's see what Jonathan says as we see the bond that they build on faithful love in verse 12. It says, Then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I'll let you know. But if he's angry and wants you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth." Really quickly here, I'd like to ask those of you that write in your Bibles, please underline the words faithful love. It's there in verse 14 and verse 15. If you're using the NKJV, it's deal kindly or kindness. It's the word kindness there. And that word in the Hebrew language, the original language in which chapter 20 was written, is the word chesed. And yes, you have to make that sound with your throat when you do it. It's chesed, okay? Um, it's like you're reaching deep down, you're digging for something, and you're chesed, okay? I've said it three times. I want to hear you guys say it at least once on the count of three. One, two, three. Some of you are really good at that sound. Others of you need to work on it. But that word chesed, we're going to come back to it. I wanted you to underline it. You can write chesed, H-E-S-E-D, out in the margin if you want. We'll come back to that, okay, in, in a few minutes. But that faithful love or that kindness of the Lord that Jonathan refers to here, that is the foundation of the covenant between Jonathan and David that they have with each other. It's also the central theme of this chapter. That word chesed, it's actually in this chapter three different times, which tells us that this is important. It's an important part of this uh, chapter, this part of David and Jonathan's life. But I also want you to note here in verse 15, the faith of Jonathan. Jonathan, there in verse 15, he believes the Lord is going to accomplish his purpose. He believes that God is going to carry out his word in David's life, even to the point that all of David's enemies will be put under his feet. You see, Jonathan is a friend who receives the word of the Lord, stands on it, and encourages others with it. Can I encourage you with something today before we move on in our story? Would you consider praying about being like Jonathan in your friendships? You see, we all need Jonathans. 
Men and women who stand on the word of God and believe it and they proclaim it to others. We need that kind of friendship in our lives. But you know what? As much as we all need it, if that's all we're focused on is, God, why don't you send me a friend like Jonathan? We're not gonna see that in our lives. You see, it starts with us. That's my point is you and I need to be a Jonathan to someone. So can I challenge you with that? Who are you a Jonathan to? Who do you, you know, encourage with the word of God in their life, bringing promises to them and saying, hey, you know the Lord says this, or you know the, the word of the God I read this morning, it says this, and I want to encourage you with that. We need those kind of people in our lives. Jonathan right here, he says to David, hey, I know the Lord is going to set you up as king. I know he's going to put his enemies under your feet. He's encouraging him. We need that kind of friendship. Verse 16, continuing here, so Jonathan made a solemn pact with David saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And then Jonathan said, tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. You will be missed when your place at the table is empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid before and wait there by the stone pile. Now that phrase, the stone pile, can literally be translated in the Hebrew language as the rock of departure. Now this rock where David is going to be hiding, it becomes not only the rock of departure in his life, it's a rock of destiny. A place where he's hiding out, waiting until his destiny is going to be determined for him. So it's significant in this story. Verse 20, continuing there, it says, I will come out and shoot three arrows to the side of the stone pile as though I were shooting at a target. And then I will send a boy to bring the arrows back. If you hear me tell him they're on this side, then you will know as surely as the Lord lives that all is well. There is no trouble. But if I tell him, go further, the, arrow, the arrows are still ahead of you or the arrows are beyond you. Then it will mean that you must leave immediately, for the Lord is sending you away. And may the Lord keep us, make us keep our promises to each other, for he has witnessed them. Notice there in verse 22, Jonathan says that it would be the Lord that is sending him away. I just want to point that out, and we'll come back to that later. Now, after scene two in this message, we kind of have this concept that's being expressed here. It's been expressed three different times. It's the concept of kindness, the concept of faithful love, this kind of covenant-type love. Now, it appeared, first of all, back in verse 8. The New King James Version uses the phrase in verse 8, you shall deal kindly with your servant. Again, the word kindly in the Hebrew language is chesed. And the New Living Translation says, show me this loyalty as my sworn friend. Now, the Hebrew word that that comes from, it's the same one that appeared in verse 14 and 15. As I said before, that word forms the foundation here of the covenant between Jonathan and David. What does that word mean, chesed? If we were to define it, there's really a threefold meaning to this word. It talks about faithful love, kindness, and goodness. So it's not just mercy. Sometimes it is translated as mercy, but it's also this faithful kind of love is kindness and goodness. That's the concept behind that word chesed. 
I want to give you a few of the different uses of the word chesed from other places in Scripture, which will help us to understand the fullness of its meaning this morning, okay? Because the word chesed, it's used uh, almost 250 times in the Old Testament. And in every time, it's, it's always speaking about God's heart for his people through his covenant, For the people that have made a covenant with God, this is his heart for them. The first place it's used is Genesis 19, verse 19. And that's in the story of Lot. You see, Lot was a guy who had, uh, he was Abraham's cousin. He was traveling with Abraham. But pretty soon, they both got so blessed, their their, their herds grew so much, they had to part ways. Well, Lot, he he, he chose the, uh, the, the choice place there in the valley. And, and with the, the fertile terrain and everything, he went down into the valley and he pitched his tents there. And then he, he set up with him facing the city of Sodom, the, the huge city of Sodom and Gomorrah there. And, and as he was looking at that city, it was enticing to him. And he slowly moved his tents closer and closer to that city until finally one day Lot was living in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he had become a prominent member of that sinful community. So much so that he was one of the leaders there, one of the elected leaders who sat in the gate and made judgments there. Now, in, in, in his life, we would say, hey, that's not the place for a man of God to be, right? Dwelling in a sinful city, even a prominent citizen in a sinful city, that's probably not the best place to be. But you know what? God loved Lot so much, he had this chesed love for Lot, that he sent him two angels Two angels to come down into the city and to say, Lot, God is about to destroy this place because of the abominations that are taking place in this city. And we're here to get you out. So God shows his chesed love, his faithful love, his goodness and kindness to a man like Lot, a man like me, a man who has made mistakes, who's found myself being tempted and lured into sinful situations time and time again. And yet, because of my covenant with Jesus Christ, my faith that's placed in him, God is able to look upon me and say, you know what, that's my child, that's my son, and I love him in spite of the fact that he's made these sinful choices. Now, that doesn't mean that God's okay with my sin. Of course, I have to repent for my sin, confess it, change my mind about it, change my direction. As I do that, God helps me, empowers me, and enables me to overcome it. But listen, that kind of love is the love that God showed to Lot. It's also evident in Isaac's life. When Abraham sent his servant to bring Isaac a bride, this word chesed is used to describe God's faithful love to Isaac in bringing him a wife, in bringing Rebekah alongside of him. Some of you guys that are single, you're like, yeah, Lord, show me that kind of kindness, right? Show me some kindness in the form of a bride or a groom that you send my way. God could walk alongside of me. That's the kind of love and kindness that the Lord has for us. He, he'll do that. He loves to guide our lives, even in those kinds of situations, in our, in our uh, uh, relationships with others. God will guide us to the right person if we give him that opportunity. That's the kind of love he has for us, his goodness and kindness. It's also used of Jacob. Jacob was uh, serving Laban, his father-in-law, in in a foreign land. And his father-in-law wasn't exactly, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. He was trying to cheat Jacob and keep him down. But God blessed Jacob in spite of that. Because he he was showing him the chesed love that 
faithful love, goodness, and kindness to Jacob, even in the midst of his circumstances in a foreign land. Also, it's shown in Moses' life when God covers Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes him by and he proclaims his name to him. He says, I am the God of mercy. That word chesed being used again and he's describing himself as this loving, good God who has good plans for his people. Then it's also used in Ruth's life when Boaz desired to redeem her and to marry her. It's a sign of God's unfailing love to her in spite of the fact that she lost her first husband and was going through hard times. She was living in poverty, man. But God has a heart for those people and he says, I love you, Ruth, and I'm gonna bring Boaz alongside and redeem you and you're gonna be flourishing and prospering in my uh, plan for your life. That's God's faithful chesed type love. And now we see it here in 1 Samuel and David's life too. God is showing faithful love through Jonathan's friendship. Guys, I want to encourage you this morning. I hope that you're encouraged to know that God, if you're in a covenant relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, he sees you with the same kind of love that he looked upon Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Ruth, and David, and many, many more people in the Old Testament And so even though you might make mistakes, even though you might commit an error, even though you might not do everything perfectly and live up to everybody's standards, and not even God's, of course not God's standards either, hey, know this, God is for you. God has a good plan for your life. No matter what kinds of things have happened, no matter what kind of mistakes have been made, even uh, when others are perpetuating those mistakes against you, God is for you. His chesed love His unfailing, faithful kindness and goodness will guide you. But you have to let him. You have to open up your heart and allow him to do that. He does it in a number of ways. Here in David's life, as I said, he's using Jonathan's loyal friendship. Now, in the meantime, as we come back to the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 20, in verse 24, we now see a display of deadly intent Look at verse 24. It says, So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon festival began, the king sat down to eat. He sat at his usual place against the wall with Jonathan sitting opposite him and Abner beside him. But David's place was empty and Saul didn't say anything about it that day. For he said to himself, Something must have made David ceremonially unclean. If you want to know what that could be, read the book of Leviticus, okay? Just a side note. You'll, you'll, you'll know everything that makes you ceremonially unclean, and it's a lot. Continuing, though, in verse 27, it says, But when David's place was empty again the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan replied, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem. He said, Please let me go, for we're having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. Pause right there for a second. Notice that Jonathan's really having to elaborate and come up with a good lie here. And and that's what happens when we scheme on our own, guys. When we try to fix situations on our own, we we end up telling lies. We end up, you know, going out and making things happen on our own, and it just gets messy. Well, things are about to get real messy in verse 30. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Yes, that's in the Bible, okay? I I didn't just say that. That's in the Bible. Do you think I don't know 
that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? You guys are all going to go home today. The pastor cussed in church today. As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. But why should he be put to death, Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. (laughs) You think? Verse 34, Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. Wow, what a turn of events for Jonathan. You see, Jonathan, he's been living in ignorance about his father's problems and issues. We can't really blame him, though, because we're just like him. We tend to do the same thing. We tend to try to ignore it when we see signs that those who are closest to us are going down the wrong path. Why is it that we do that? Why is it that we would love to just look the other way? Well, often I believe it's because we don't want to believe that about someone we love. We don't want to believe that they're going that way. Sometimes we don't want to accept that it's true. Or perhaps we just don't want to rock the boat. We know that they're heading down a destructive path, but we don't do anything because we'd rather just keep the harmony that we have. We don't want to face the facts. But just like Jonathan finds out, guess what? The truth will eventually come out. It always does, doesn't it? Given enough time, the truth always comes out, guys. And here, Jonathan had to face the facts. He had to see that his father had some serious issues going on in his life. I do want to point something out here, though. God is not one to let our sinful motives stay hidden forever, but he's also not just dying to expose us. A lot of people think God's like the cosmic you know, policeman who's just waiting to give you a ticket you know, and just waiting to you know, punish you. But you know what I found in my experience? The Lord is so gracious. He's so patient. He's so loving. And the way that he deals with us is not that he wants to just expose our sin immediately and have us you know, embarrassed and ashamed, but rather he sends messengers to us and he works with us and he tries to bring us to a place in his love and in his kindness where we repent. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says it's the loving kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Guess what? Saul has been given so many opportunities to turn from his uh, uh, sin and repent. But listen, he never wanted to take that. The Bible says there in verse 34 of 1 Samuel 20, if you notice it again, that Jonathan was absolutely crushed by his father's shameful behavior towards David. If you're a father here today and you're listening right now, listen, let this be a strong warning to us, to us fathers out there, that let us not be the cause of our kids one day being crushed because of something that we are hiding in our lives. If we're hiding something, if we're practicing something that we think is a secret, hey, you know what? God in his love, he doesn't want to expose us and he's working even now today in his grace and mercy calling to us to repent. But if we don't, eventually God will bring that out into the open. And listen, it's a sad, sad day when our kids have to be crushed 
in shame because of something their fathers have been doing on the side or in the dark or hiding. Saul had every chance to get it right. What was it that kept him from doing it? Well, it was his pride. Saul was an extremely prideful person who lived in the flesh. He said, no, man, if, if I admit this, if I admit I'm wrong, I might have to give up the kingdom. If I admit I'm wrong, people are going to think I'm weak. If I admit that I'm doing this, man, everybody's going to know that I'm not fit to be a ruler. Hey, listen, those are the same things that Satan uses in our lives to keep us under his sway as well. And we've got to call it what it is, guys. We've got, to, we've got to come out from under that. We've got to realize, hey, that pride is just going to hold us back. It's going to keep us in bondage. It's going to keep us under. What we need is men who are willing to say, you know what? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I need Jesus every day. I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm willing to confess to the Lord. I'm willing to repent and change my mind about these things and go the way that God wants me to go so that one day... We're not like Jonathan here who feels crushed because of what his father is doing in his life. And we've come now to the last scene in our story for today's message, and that is a providential parting there in verse 35. It says, The next morning, as agreed, Jonathan went out into the field, took a young boy with him to gather his arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran, and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. They weren't following the rules of the range very well, were they, guys? I mean, don't ever try this at home, okay? Don't send somebody out in front of the firing line while you're shooting, okay? Just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page there. When the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, The arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran back to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him, told him to take them back to town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Again, there's the phrase in the Hebrew language, the stone of departure. It holds in this idea of it that David is waiting in the stone. He's hiding out here. It's a stone of departure, but it's also a stone of destiny, a rock that holds his destiny. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground, and both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, but especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. So David was there waiting He's waiting at the rock of departure, the rock that holds his destiny. He knows he's going to get an answer today. That answer might be favorable. It might be an arrow that says, no, it's, it's on this side of you, so that he can go back and be restored to his position, serving his country, to his home and his wife. I'm sure that that's what David was longing for. I know that's what I would be longing for. His destiny lies before him there. One road is comfortable and familiar. The other is an unknown path. I'm sure David is longing for a favorable answer. How his heart must have sunk when he heard those words from Jonathan. Is the arrow not beyond you? Is the arrow not beyond you? As those words were spoken, the signal fell and the understanding grew in his heart that that arrow was sent from heaven. It was an arrow from the Lord. 
You see, David's circumstances were beyond his control, but they were God-ordained circumstances. It was out of his hands now. The arrow was beyond him. Perhaps you're also at a point in your life today where the arrow is beyond you. Your life circumstances are beyond your control. You're uncertain of what may happen in the future, but know this, they are never out of God's control. In fact, you need to learn to see them as from God's hand. David had to learn that his circumstances were coming from God's hand. You, like David, must learn to trust your destiny to God and fully rely on his faithful love to guide you one step at a time. Remember that faithful love? It's the foundation of the covenant between Jonathan and David. They knew that they were going to be able to carry out that covenant because God was going to be faithful to them. Now, as we close this chapter, neither David nor Jonathan, they don't know what their future holds. But they do know this. They know that God's love is dependable. And as long as he is their firm foundation, they know that they can move forward confidently trusting in him because he holds their future in his hands. You see, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's faithful love, they built a firm foundation for David and Jonathan's lives. Is that true in your life today? Are you standing in God's faithful kindness, his goodness, his mercy towards you? It's God's loyal love towards you. It's available today. It's not based on your good works. You don't have to go out and earn it. And you definitely don't deserve it. I know that I don't. In fact, we'll never deserve it, and we can never earn it. There's no amount of good works we can do. God's loyal love, his mercy, his kindness, it's given to us based on one fact, the fact that we trust in his son, Jesus Christ. We must, like David, come to that rock of departure, which is also our rock of departure. It's our rock of destiny. That rock, according to the Bible, is Jesus Christ. He is our rock of destiny. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. In fact, let's turn over there if you've got your Bibles. I'm going to read several verses from 1 Peter this morning as I close this message. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. It tells us that you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. So listen, the Bible tells us that by coming to Christ, we will live. We're building our life on Jesus Christ, who is the living cornerstone, the rock of destiny. His love for us becomes a firm foundation in our lives so that we can stand and face the future and whatever the future holds. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. I also want to read this to you. It says, And now, just as you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Let your roots grow down into Him, and let your lives be built on Him. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Listen, I love that exhortation, and it's an opportunity this morning for you and for me. Don't miss this opportunity to root your life, to ground your life 
in Jesus Christ, in his truth. As you do that, you will become stable and strong and God will be able to guide you into the life that he has for you. Don't reject that living rock that is Jesus Christ this morning because the Bible tells us those that do will determine their own destiny, a destiny of judgment. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, going back to that scripture. It says, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Notice there that Jesus Christ is either a rock, a security, a, security, a secure foundation that we build our lives on, or Jesus Christ is the rock of destiny in the sense that we, we stumble and fall because of disobedience. Rejection of Jesus Christ leads to destruction and judgment, not because uh, God is, 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 is wrong, but because we are disobedient to his word. Now I pray that you do not stumble in unbelief and fall away this morning because of disobedience. You know, disobedience always starts with something little small, a little small thing, and then it leads to something else, and then something else. And then pretty soon, we're looking back and we're going, wow, I've really traveled a long ways from where I should be. I've really gotten a, a way off base here. All because of a little bit of disobedience. But listen, that's not God's heart. God's heart is not that you would stumble and fall. God wants to secure your future in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray.